And this morning we continue our series entitled Sin No More, which we have begun because we felt it necessary to once again remind ourselves and possibly rediscover for ourselves the seriousness of sin. We live in a culture today that does not like to take responsibility for one's actions. Would anybody disagree with me on that? It's always someone else's fault for those things that we have done. And often we have a tendency to dismiss the seriousness of our actions. We don't really consider the cost of the consequences. When it comes to sin, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we live in a culture today that is becoming very tolerant of almost anything and everything. But as society changes, does that mean that our scale, our slide, moves along with society and tolerates the same thing that they do? And when I use the word tolerate, what do I mean by that? I mean that we accept it as normal behavior that is acceptable before God. Of course, I'm speaking as a believer in Christ, as a Christian, as society's tables continue to move, as their scales continue to slide. Does that mean that me as a Christian, you as a Christian, should change your standards along with that of the world's? That's correct, no. For our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is a statement of consistency, but it's also an absolute statement. It states that he, is, he doesn't change, ever. And what God stated was sin has been sin from the beginning to the end of the book that we hold in our laps this morning, the Bible. As we as believers must adopt the same mindset of that of God when it comes to the issue of sin. Because sin is serious before God. It is sin that separates man from God. It is sin that must be overcome for God to once again reconcile uh, a fallen individual, a non-believer with himself through the person of Jesus Christ. How serious is sin? Well, let's consider it this way. What did God have to do to overcome sin? He had to come and die himself and then on the third day rise again. He needed to subject himself to his own creation to allow the atonement of sin to occur. That is significant. There is no religion in the world that the deity has offered himself as an atonement for sin apart from Jesus Christ. Let us know that from the beginning. Every religion that I have studied in the world states that man must in his or her own effort reach the standards of that deity, of that God, to be acceptable before that God. And God said to us, that's impossible, you're never going to be able to do it. Without me you're lost. And it required him to step out of heaven be born in a manger and then to grow to be a man and that at 33 years old be subjected to his own creation to be mocked to humiliated tortured and crucified in the manner in which he was to atone pay for the sins of mankind 
This is significant. If we diminish the seriousness of sin, we are never going to truly appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ in the manner that it is meant to be appreciated. Let us understand that. If we believe that sin can be overcome in any way, shape, or form by our own efforts, think of how quickly that negates the necessity of a Savior in Jesus Christ. So as we are pursuing and once again trying to rediscover the seriousness of sin before God, we brought to your attention in John chapter 8 an individual who was caught in the act of sin. Let's begin in verse 2 of chapter 8 of John's Gospel. We've read this several times, but let us paint the picture once again. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, that is Jesus, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground as they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And then Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, And from now on, sin no more. I bring this account to your attention because it gives us an illustration of sin. And the question becomes, what to do about the individual caught in the act of adultery? And one of the consensuses that we came to was the fact that all four parties, the religious leaders, Jesus the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and the people who were with him, who he was teaching, all were in agreement that what she had done was considered sin. There was no debate amongst them. Adultery was considered sin in the eyes of God. But now what to do about it? As we looked at the religious leaders, as they came at it, they looked at it from a legal perspective. They simply wanted to stone her, which would have rectified the situation, but it would have satisfied the letter of the law, but it would have been completely dismissive of the spirit of it. We have the people who obviously agreed that what Moses said was right, what the religious leaders said that Moses stated was correct, and she must be stoned. And they were willing to pick up stones to stone her until they were challenged by one. The one who apparently was on trial also at that time, Jesus, as they began to test him and tried him and wanted him to either discredit himself by negating the severity of the sin that Moses had charged or by violating the oppression of the Roman Empire by requiring them to stone her, according to Moses. Either way, he would have lost. But masterfully, 
as he always has. He began to write, and we don't know what he wrote in the ground. Many believe it was the sins of the individual that were so willing to stone this woman. But when he made the statement, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. The only one present that was without sin was Jesus himself. And yet he did not condemn her because she was already condemned, regardless of the act of adultery or not. She was condemned before God because she was in a fallen state before God. And it was his mission to save and to seek those who are lost. And in just a matter of time, he would be going to the cross, not only for the sins of the world, but her sin as well. Embracing the spirit of the law, which allowed for repentance and reconciliation to God through Christ. But let's look at it this morning from the idea of the people. How did the people come to a consensus among themselves that adultery was a sin? And there was no debate about it. And I agree with those who state that it was the people in whom Jesus was teaching that were so willing to pick up the stones to stone her. Often the scribes themselves, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, wouldn't get their hands dirty in such a regard. But the people wanting to be obedient to the law of Moses realized that what this woman had done was punishable by death. And they were willing to exercise that punishment before God. Why were they so convinced that adultery was a sin? To the point that they were willing to kill a person due to it. That's a question. It's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Why did they have such a conscience? Concerning sin. Why was it on the forefront? Why was the knowledge so clear? As we begin to talk about this, it is our intention this morning to address the collective conscience of the individuals to the understanding of knowing what is sin and what is not. Now, if we all lived here in the United States of America 150 years ago, let's say, we would have discovered that the populace of the United States of America was much more familiar with the biblical standards of morality, and the majority of people held those biblical standards of morality as their personal standards for morality. Now, I'm not saying everybody was Christian. I'm not saying that everybody was saved. But there were just certain things that were absolutely unacceptable. And you can see that throughout the history of our nation. There was a a general consensus among people that certain actions were sin. In fact, up until just recently, adultery could be prosecuted as a crime against an individual. Did you know that? They could be held accountable, and they could be charged, and they could be sentenced for these crimes here in America. Now, today we have moved away from those things. Those moral standards are not held to any longer, but they once were in our nation, showing that our nation at one time had a consensus when it came to these particular acts of sin. But things are changing, aren't they? Now, as the slide continues to slide one way, and that is always away from the direction of God's standard, what do we do as Christians, and how do we maintain a consensus of understanding what is sin before God? 
Now let's be clear. When we talk about sin, I want to be clear that there are two forms of sin that we must be aware of. There are forms of sin where we are told to do something and we neglect to do it. Those are sins of omission. When the Bible instructs me to do something and yet I refuse to do it, that is a sin of omission. There is also a sin of commission or a sin that I act upon that God says do not do and yet I do it. That is a sin of commission. Both must be dealt with if we're going to talk about what is sin. But formulating the consensus among the people and their willingness to be brought into a position that they were willing to go from a manner of being taught by Jesus to a manner of willing to pick up stones to stone a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. That's an extraordinary movement if you think about it. They were that convinced that adultery was sin and needed to be taken care of and rectified in the manner in which Moses prescribed. Yet Jesus had a whole new plan in mind. Before we begin to understand how a consensus was formed, there's some principles that I think we need to adopt first and foremost. Since it is possible for an individual like you and I to not know what sin may be, we then have to wrestle with some considerations that we must apply. First of all, the first consideration is man's perception of right and wrong cannot be allowed as the standard. Meaning, my simple perception of right and wrong as an individual, based upon my judgment and my own personal conscience, cannot be sufficient to determine what sin is and what sin is not. Why? It's too subjective. You've seen that probably in your own life. Maybe you are struggling with some area of sin in your life and you know it's sin and you are very gracious when it comes to you. Very forgiving. But then you see it on another person and you are absolutely uh, appalled by it. The same sin. You're repulsed by it. And you become very critical of it. We cannot be our own determiners of what sin is and what sin is not. Our own conscience, our own judgment in and of itself is incapable of doing that. That's the problem with society today, isn't it? Everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. And since that is the case, when we come to the inquiry of what is sin, it must be determined from outside of a man and not from within him. The presence of sin in man is so great that it separates us from God. And therefore, we do not have a proper perspective that allows us to determine what sin is and what sin is not apart from God. That leads us into our second principle. If we cannot determine what is right and wrong in and of our own heart because our own heart is so desperately wicked, who can know it? then we must rely on an outside source to determine what sin is and what sin is not. Because in this room, you as individuals would be very critical of some sin and probably very compassionate concerning other sin depending on how you deal or how you personally struggle with that particular sin. You see what I'm saying? 
So we cannot be objective looking at things ourselves. Today our society wants us to believe that the popular opinion dictates what is right and what is wrong. How's that working out for us? No. Right and wrong cannot be determined by mankind simply on the basis of popularity. So we must look for an outside source. Secondly, we cannot base on our own personal opinion what is right and wrong and then therefore discover what is necessary to rectify that sin. Meaning, we cannot be objective enough to understand that if I'm doing something wrong, this is what it's going to take to rectify that problem. It's impossible for us to do. Because we're always going to be more lenient towards ourselves than others. In most regards. But yet we're seeing a phenomenon in our society today that's becoming very popular. Where no one wants to hold anyone accountable for anything because they personally don't want to be held accountable for themselves. Think about that for a moment. So everything's okay. Because I don't want you to tell me something that I am doing isn't okay. So therefore must affirm what you are doing to allow myself to continue on in the actions that I have prescribed for myself. And lastly, the ignorance of sin must demonstrate to you and I how helpless we are to overcome it in and of ourselves. Now these things are things that you're going to have to chew on, you're going to have to consider for yourself. I've spent quite a time doing it myself, but these are principles that I came to, that if we are going to ask, how does a group come to a consensus and know what sin is, we have to understand that number one, sin cannot be determined by the mass, it must be determined outside of ourselves, and number two, the atonement of that sin must be prescribed by the one who dictates what sin is and what sin is not, and number three, we must understand that we are completely helpless in overcoming sin if we don't even know what sin is. Think about that for a moment. Now these three steps bring you right to the foot of the gospel, doesn't it? It makes you consider what God has done for us in a completely different way. God knew right from wrong. We then developed a conscience at the fall. We now know right and wrong to a certain degree of subjectivity, which cannot be the final authority. And as a result, it has left us in a place of total inability to put sin away in and of ourselves. We cannot overcome sin in and of ourselves if we don't even truly know what sin is. How is it possible that we could rectify all of the issues of sin if we ourselves are ignorant to some of the sin that God may consider sin? And we see this displayed in the Gospels perfectly, where the people who were inundated with the Word of God from their childhood, growing up in Judaism... They knew adultery was wrong. They knew that hatred was, uh, murder was wrong. But Jesus said something that they didn't anticipate when he came. It's not enough just to avoid the actions of adultery. But if your heart lusts after another, oh, wait a minute now, we didn't consider that ramification or that perspective of sin. Or then he went on to say, if 
You may not murder, you know that, you've been taught that. However, though, that if you're angry with a person, you've already committed murder in your heart. Wait a minute now. Now you're taking it to a whole other level. So it's not only the action that God considers, it's the heart behind it that God also considers. And that condemns each and every one of us. And certainly displays for each and every one of us that we cannot be the determiners of what is right and wrong. It must come from without. And from the beginning, God demonstrated that from Adam and Eve to Moses to Jesus. It is always God who determined what is right and wrong for his creation. From the beginning, when Adam and Eve were created, we hear these words in Genesis 2 15 through 17. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. From the beginning, God was the one that established right and wrong. It wasn't man. It is God. When Moses was given the incredible task of leading the people out of Egypt to form a nation, now that's monumental in and of itself if you consider it. Leading four million some people out of Egypt to a land that God was preparing them, that God was going to give them, and then to establish a nation. God knew that there had to be a infrastructure in place for that nation to succeed. That infrastructure was set through the law, the first five books of the Bible. In three divisions, we have the moral law, the national law, the ceremonial law. The moral law governed the people's personal lives. The ceremonial governed how God was to be worshipped. And the national law governed how the nation was to be run. The moral law, of course, carried into the New Testament. And therefore, we must be aware of the things that God had deemed sin from the beginning. But listen to these words. Exodus 19, 5 through 9. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders and the people and set before them all these words that the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together. Here's the consensus. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported to the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that when the people may hear when I speak to you, they may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people of the Lord, they believed. From the beginning, God knew that if a people were to be established and if there was going to be a cohesiveness amongst the people, if there was going to be a general conscience concerning what is right and wrong, sin and righteousness, it had to be implemented by him and that is only found in the word of God. 
That is where we discover what is right and what is wrong. And from the moment the Ten Commandments were given to the people, and I would encourage you to read Exodus 20 and listen to the words as you read them, you will discover that God is laying down for the people the standard of what is right and wrong. Now, here in our nation, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, we've been plagued by images like this, haven't we? Where we've seen the Ten Commandments being removed from every public place within our society. And most people that I discuss the removal of the Ten Commandments with, they are convinced that the only reason that these are being removed is because of a statute called the separation of church and state. Now that might be the legal reason that these people are doing it, which by the way you will not find the separation of church and state in the Constitution or in the Bill of Rights. You will not find those words. But that being said, the reason so many of our courthouses, including the Supreme Court, had the illustration of the Ten Commandments was because of our judicial system here in the United States being built upon the foundations of the Ten Commandments of Judeo-Christian values. But notice that as we continue to remove the Ten Commandments, notice how the scales continue to slide. Now the ultimate authority here in the United States of America when it comes to moral values doesn't appear to be God in the Bible any longer or the church establishing right and wrong, sin from righteousness. Today it is determined by nine people, isn't it? The Supreme Court. That's a scary reality to me. Because as we determine, man cannot be the determiner of what is right and wrong in and of himself. It's an impossibility. Because if you're going to work on a democratic scale, meaning the majority wins, it's constantly going to be moved in the direction of the world, isn't it? As the majority of people are moved by the ruler of this world, you know that the legislation is going to be moved along with it in the popular consensus of the unregenerate world. And God is taken out of the equation. Even though the values... And you ask yourself, what is so reprehensible about the Ten Commandments that we feel it's so necessary to remove them from every point of public display? What's so wrong about it? What's so wrong about the Christian faith that it is so hated among so many today? and frowned upon in so many ways. Why? Because it is the truth. Why isn't Islam being persecuted in the same way? How is it possible that cities in the United States of America can be adopting Sharia law? How is it possible? Because a group of people colonate to one particular area, become the majority, and change the legislation from the inside out. Scary factor, isn't it? Man cannot determine what is right and wrong in and of himself. It must come from without. 
And we will argue that it is God who determines what is right and wrong from His Word from the beginning. He told His peoples of blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy 28. He said, If you are faithful and obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord thy God. But he also stated in Deuteronomy 28 to the people of Israel, the same people in which were given the Ten Commandments, but if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statute, I command you this day, then all the curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And the curses are over a chapter and a half, and the blessings are this long. Now, what am I stating here? If we argue from the point that God exists, which we are, and He has established what is right and wrong in His Word, then the consensus that we come to as believers in Jesus Christ concerning sin and righteousness must be determined from the Word of God and not our own personal conscience or judgment we must always go back to the Word of God for the final authority in all manners concerning sin. And I will argue that the reason the people there in John chapter 8 were so willing to take up stones and to cast them against this woman, killing her for the act of adultery, is from the very beginning they knew that the act of adultery was sin before God. Now I'm painting a picture in hopes that you understand that what we are moving to is the seriousness of sin, the depravity of sin, and we'll see then how helpless we are in that state of sin, and only through the grace of God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, can we be lifted out of that position before God. There is no other cure. There is no other remedy. Now as we come to the New Testament... Next week we are going to be looking at some other aspects of this, but in the New Testament, Jesus made it clear that sin was not just the act of obeying and disobeying, but it was a matter of the heart, that it originated within a person. The Old Testament saw to that too, but often that was dismissed just to state that a person was in compliance just by their actions was enough. When Jesus says, no, it's a matter of the heart also. And though you may be able to change your outward uh, habits to a certain degree, you'll never be able to do it perfectly. No one was ever justified by the law. No one was ever saved by the law. Meaning no one was ever made completely right, completely uh, whole because of the law. It was only through Christ that such a thing was going to be uh, had. And the reason was is because Christ was going to get to the root of the matter. And that's a person's heart. We are all convinced that we are all basically good people. We're convinced of that fact. And the problem with society today isn't the fact that we are evil and wicked people. The problem with society today is that we just don't know how good we actually are and our self-esteem therefore isn't reflecting that. So for the last 20 years, we have been bolstering the self-esteem of people to the point now where we have created a self-centered entitlement nation. It's all about us. Now, where did we ever come to the conclusion that man was all generally good? 
think about that for a moment. If we are basically telling everybody from the beginning that everybody is generally good, then they really have no need of the gospel, and the Bible is completely inaccurate. The Bible starts from a different perspective altogether. And what we are seeing today is the fruits of everything that we've reaped. It's amazing what we are seeing in our own city. The shootings, the murders, the films that are now coming out based upon Chirac. Comparing Chicago with Iraq. Are we getting better? Is society progressing and evolving into a state of betterness? Now, I I say a betterness, but I don't speak for a living. Um, Are we actually moving in the right direction or are we simply deceived in and of ourselves thinking that we are? Now, this is tough stuff to consider because maybe you have grown up with the understanding that you are generally a good person and that as long as you don't do the biggies like murder, adultery, hatred, you're okay. But in the eyes of God, lying is just as serious. Anger is just as serious. Idolatry is just as serious, if not more so. And those things we do not consider. And as a result, we find ourselves in a guilty stage. Today, the number one idol in a person's life is themselves. And we see that in the culmination of everything in our nation today. Now, what am I saying here? What I'm saying here is that it's a matter of the heart. Jesus made four statements in Matthew chapter 5 concerning the matter of the heart. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, he says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable of hell of fire. Matthew five twenty-seven and 28. You have heard what has been said. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intents has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 15. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defiles a person, Jesus says. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. It's a matter of the heart. How do you change a person's heart? See, the people who were ready to stone this woman had a consensus uh, academically, ideology. They had this thinking that it was wrong, that adultery was wrong, but they had no consideration of the heart. Jesus now brings that factor in and says, I can change people from the inside out to allow them to be a new creation. I can do things inside of them that they cannot do for themselves. 
We are not going to be in a consensus concerning sin in this nation until we once again subject ourselves to God and to His authority. And by us removing the Ten Commandments from our public place, what we are doing is we are saying to God, we are throwing off the yoke of bondage that we believe you have placed upon us to allow us then to live as we so choose to live because that's the ultimate act of freedom. And God says, no, it is not the ultimate act of freedom. By you pursuing these lusts of your own passions, the lusts of your own heart, these are not freedoms, these are bondages that you will find yourself within once again, and they will destroy you from the inside out. Sin is very serious before God. And it's also the obedience out of love, the motivation of our heart that brings us into subjection to God, do you truly love the Lord? Listen to what Mark says. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well and asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there is no commandment greater than these. In John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Yet the basis of all is the word of God. What I'm trying to say this morning is this. We have lost our way. We have lost our bearing. As we continuously remove God from every aspect of our personal and public life, we are losing our way, and yet we are being told that this is necessary for the healthy progression of our society. But how can you have a healthy society that is solely based on what everyone individually thinks is right and wrong? How can you form a consensus or have any type of unity when individuals in and of themselves disagree on the most fundamental aspects of life? You can't have it. That's what we see happening in our culture today. And this will not be changed by us simply imposing more laws upon our society. Laws are created to dictate and to govern and to control morality to a certain extent. We all know that, don't we? Murder is wrong and someone can be held accountable in our legal system for killing another. Stealing is wrong. Lying under oath is wrong. These all came from the Old Testament Judaism. And today now, we are whittling away at the most fundamental aspects of our judicial system, allowing each and every one to determine what is right in their own eyes. And because of that, no one wants to be held accountable for anything that they do any longer. This is huge. And this is why we are in the trouble that we are. And if anyone would do just a little bit of homework and discover nations that have taken this path before us, 
they will discover very quickly that it has left the cohesiveness of nations in shambles. Today we know that many want to revisit and rewrite our Constitution. For we've had the same Constitution for over 200 years that has governed our national and legal life. If that Constitution is changed and it has been amended, you know, the, the, the uh, Bill of Rights and so forth, the amendments to it, but if it's changed in its totality, you will then change the course of this nation. And that's what they want to do right now. If you read from the writers of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, etc., you will read that they all anticipated that the moral governing factor wasn't going to be simply the government, but their conscience dominated by God. They're saying that an individual, to truly get all out of the Constitution that they are writing, needed to be subjected to God and His moral standards. The moment we remove that component is the moment we lose that aspect And the Constitution then becomes a hindrance rather than a help to the development of our society. Now some will argue that the values of Judeo-Christianity are out of date. For science and secularism has shown that what the Bible has called sin is just simply in some matters an alternative lifestyle. That's the way they were created. However, though, from a biblical worldview, our argument would be that what they are doing is indicative of who they are as a sinner before God. Now, this is tough stuff. Nobody wants to hear this. But we're stating it because of the series that we're in and the consensus that we need to form that the biblical authority concerning right and wrong, is what is needed to govern the hearts and the minds of those who follow Jesus Christ. Not that personal opinion and the subjective culture of our world. Meaning, it's going to get harder being a Christian going forward, isn't it? Maybe you've already experienced that where you've had to disagree with someone over some of the most hot-button popular issues of today. And of course, homosexuality is one of those. As individuals believe that for some reason, as Christians, we cannot love the individual, but not condone the action of the individual. I can, because I believe God can. But God clearly condemns the act of homosexuality in the Bible. And though people are arguing against that today and books are being written trying to explain that away, and of course, today you can find a book that, well, will tell you exactly what you want to hear. The Bible is clear. But wasn't that for that time? Can't moral standards change? Because remember, at one time you Christians were saying that interracial marriage was wrong. Well, it was totally wrong teaching from the beginning. The Bible never taught that in in Christianity. And so forth. 
Now, we are being lumped in with many who have given the impression that Christianity is the justifier for all different types of evil, from slavery to racism. But in actuality, what people don't understand is that if you look at the proponents that demolished slavery, especially in the European kingdom, it was Wilberforce through Christian teaching that led him to abolish slavery. How about Martin Luther King and his idea of Christianity eliminating racism here in the United States of America? See, people want to bring those arguments to the surface when we say, no, we believe homosexuality is wrong. This is not apples to apples. These are apples to oranges. It's a different conversation altogether. But why we no longer have that consensus is because we no longer have subjected ourselves to the authority of the Bible. Next week, we're going to continue this. And we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. As the Bible places itself as the final authority over all things in the hearts and the minds of the believers in Jesus Christ, we understand that to be the case because it is the inspired word of God, God breathed. And today we wanted to set a, a, a quest out, if you will, a map out, if you will, to state that to return to a consensus, we have to continue to subject ourselves to the Bible. Now, I know that for some, this might sound like a very dangerous proposition, that for the believer in Jesus Christ, this is what God requires of us. Next week, we're going to discover that the greatest opposition that we are facing is not only the world today, but what is known as the false church. The false church is rising very quickly. And it is reflecting more of the world than that of God. And one who is not a Christian, one who is apart from this, would state that, well, how is it that you both can read the exact same things and come to such varying conclusions? We're going to answer that question next week. But the individuals, if you consider once again, in John chapter 8, I find this fascinating. They were willing They were simply there for a Bible study. And by the end of it, they were taking up rocks to kill somebody. Now, is that what I'm condoning? That sin be handled in that way? No. But what I'm saying is that there was a mindset that they knew that the wickedness of this woman was going to bring consequences upon the people. And there was a fear of God that is no longer there today a fear of the Lord and who He is. And what I mean by fear, I'm talking about a reverence and a respect and an awe of a mighty God who came in the person of Christ to seek and to save those who were lost. As we drowned in our sinful state and we were deprived and and we were completely incapable of saving ourselves, God reached down to save us. He showed an extraordinary love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
that if we would believe by faith in him, we would be restored and become new creations in him once again. But if we diminish the seriousness of sin, we will diminish the appreciation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we tell people that they are not accountable for their actions, they will think that they are not accountable to God, and they are accountable to God. And God will hold them in righteous judgment if they do not turn from their sins and turn to Christ. That's so important for us to understand. May I read something to you from a man that you may or may not have heard of? His name is Jonathan Edwards, the old preacher from the late 1800s. He had this real issue with sin, and it comes out in almost every one of his writings. Listen to what he says. And we'll close with these words. If we live in any way of sin, we live in a way whereby God is dishonored. But the honor of God ought to be supremely regarded by all. If everyone would make it his great care in all things to obey God, to live justly and holy, to walk in everything according to Christian rules, and would maintain a strict, watchful, and scrutinous eye over himself to see if there were no wicked way in him, would give diligence to amend whatsoever is amiss, would avoid every unholy, unchristian, and sinful way, and if practice of all were universally as becometh Christians, how greatly would this be to the glory of God and of Jesus Christ. How greatly would it be to the credit and honor of the Christian faith? How would it tend to excite a high esteem of the Christian faith and spectators and to recommend a holy life? How it would stop the mouths of objectors and opposers? How beautiful and amicable it would be if the Christian faith then appeared in such a way. When exemplified in the lives of Christian, not maimed and mutilated, but whole and entire, as it were in its true shape, having all of its parts and his proper beauty, the Christian faith would then appear to be an admirable thing before the eyes of the world. We don't take sin seriously enough, he is stating, and therefore the world doesn't take it seriously enough. It starts with us. And I bring this to your attention that as you continue to walk with God, you would understand for yourself how much Christ has done for you to become that new creation in Him. That in the blood of Jesus Christ, your sins have not just been covered, but washed away once and for all. Though your sins were as red as scarlet, now in Christ you can be as white as snow. This is an important thing for you and I to understand if we are truly going to live out the Christian faith as God would have us to live it out. Not earning our salvation by doing what is right. I don't want to give anyone that appearance. But out of our love for God, we would obey Him. Why and how? Because He first loved us and demonstrated that love through the giving of His only begotten Son. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 